Welcome to the Holistic Counseling Podcast, where you discover diverse wellness modalities, advice on growing your integrative practice, and grow confidence in being your unique self. I'm your host, Chris McDonald. I'm so glad you're here for the journey. Welcome to today's episode of the Holistic Counseling Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDonald. I am excited to hear from today's guest, Dr. John Demartini. He's here to talk about the signs you're living in your reactive survival brain versus living in your self-governing thrival brain and how to overcome it. He is a world-leading human behavior specialist, researcher, best-selling author, educator, and founder of the Demartini Method, a revolutionary tool in modern psychology. Harnessing almost five decades of research across multiple disciplines, Dr. Demartini shares his life, business, financial, relationship, and leadership empowerment strategies with people all over the globe, enabling them to transform their lives according to their highest values. An interesting fact about him is he nearly died weeks before his 18th birthday, and that experience shifted him into a different life course. Welcome to the Holistic Counseling Podcast, Dr. Demartini. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So can you share with my listeners a little bit more about yourself and your work? You have a lot going on. I know we talked before <laughs> we start hit record. So. Uh, you know, the best way to describe me is that I research, I write, yeah, I teach, and I travel. And that's about all I'm good at. The rest of it I delegate out because I'm not that competent in those areas. I learned a long time ago to find what you excel at and stick to that. Yeah, that's so a good that's life that. lesson. Yeah, I, I research, write, travel, teach. That's about it. I'm, I'm, I don't have much strength in those other areas. So I haven't driven a car in 32 years. And I haven't cooked since I was 24. And I, I delegate everything. Oh, that's great. I like how you sum it all up into categories. <laughs> that's very clever. I have a joke that, you know, I went to my girlfriend. I, my wife passed away a number of years ago. And I, oh, I'm sorry. My girlfriend and I said, I said, if I was to delegate lovemaking to George Clooney, would you still love me? And she said, I would love you even more. So I, I figure that delegation has a lot of places it could be useful. Yes, definitely. That's a bad joke. That's funny. No. Uh, but yeah, the, the listeners, here, a lot of times I've talked to them about, you know, a lot of us are business owners and we own private practices and many try to do it all. But I think that you brought a good point is that there's some things we're just not that good at, right? Well, I learned, you know, when I was 27 years old, I went to a bookstore. It was Walden Books. I remember Walden Books. And they um, had a section on kind of self-help and business. And I found this book called The Time Trap by Alec McKinsey. And in there, I devoured this book, cornered every corner of the book and underlined it, that kind of thing, and extracted some of the essence of what I felt was important out of it. And I created a chart on a piece of paper. I divided the piece of paper into six columns, five vertical lines, six columns, equal spaced. In the first column, I wrote down everything I did in a day from the time I got up to the time I went oh, to bed. Oh, yeah. Everything that I did in a day. And I divided it into professional and personal. And I looked at that. And as I was writing that, I mean, I didn't write generalities business. I wrote down, made this call, ordered this supply, worked with this client. I went down and, and wrote exactly what I actually did with my muscle activities per day throughout the day. And I thought about it over a three-month period and thought about what might I be doing over those three months to make sure I concluded everything that I might be doing. I made an exhaustive list. And as I was doing that, I was looking, you know, I do a lot of stuff that yeah. is lower mm -hmm. priority and not really the thing I went to professional school for. And I'm not getting paid for it. And it's kind of devaluing my time 
And no wonder I'm not really the most productive I can be. And so exactly. there's a lot of insight just making the list. Isn't it? Yeah, for sure. In the second column, I wrote down how much does it produce per hour? Because I, I measured my contribution to somebody else by how much they're willing to value it by paying. And if I'm not, if I'm doing something that's not worth any value to anybody, I'm obviously devaluing my time and I'm not making a contribution to other people. So I put a dollar value next to it to see if I'm actually making any sort of contribution to anybody enough where they would be willing to pay it. Yeah. And uh, that was eye opening because then I realized that there were some things that really produced a lot and other things that didn't produce but zero. And I has a whole lot of zeros on there on that list. But I then reprioritized that list according to what produced the most to least to most, just because that way I could find out what I'm actually contributing and making some sort of contribution. And I was amazed when I got that list. I was going, there's absolutely no reason I have anybody to look at except myself about why I'm not possibly producing and having the most fulfillment, because I found that I have a lot of fulfillment making a difference in people's lives, particularly when there's a fair exchange. And I wasn't doing it. I was too busy doing other things that I thought were important that really weren't my area of expertise, but I was holding on to. After I finished that list and prioritized it, relisted it, I rewrote it according to the one that produced the most to least. I also decided, you know what, I'm going to start charging for some of those things. That's my time. I, I was devaluing yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. And so that helped. In the third column, I wrote down how much meaning does it have? On a one to 10 scale, 10 being absolutely inspiring where I transcendental thinking about it. I get tears in my eyes thinking about it. I go, oh, I get to do this. It's amazing. Down to, oh, I got to do that. And I broke it down based on a one to 10 scale, 10 being highly inspiring and engaging and intrinsically called and the rest of them being extrinsically motivating to me to do it. I had to do it. Got to do it. And I then made that list and that was eye-opening. And then I prioritized that according to from 10 down to one. It just so happened that some of the tens were also the ones that produced the most. So I was very thankful for that because those are the things I couldn't wait to get up in the morning and do. And the people couldn't wait to come and get it because it was a win-win to everybody. And then I reprioritized those two. And I looked at that and I go, Ooh, I can see where I need to be putting my focus. I need to, you know, go into the direction where it's meaningful and productive. In the next column, I wrote down, how much would it cost me to delegate that? If I was to delegate that information, that, that particular job duty to somebody else with all the costs, not just the salary, but parking and paper clips and equipment and uh, space usage and training and time off and bonuses. I mean, I got it down to the penny. And then I put the spreads there between what it produced per hour versus what it cost per hour. And I reprioritized that. In the next column, I wrote down how much time do I actually spend on that on average per day? And on the last column, I wrote down the final prioritization. So taking all the variables together, what is the final prioritization what do I need to be focusing on versus what do I need to delegate? And then I layered that into 10 layers and I put job descriptions for each layer. And then I went out and hired somebody to do that lowest one and the next lowest one and the next lowest one. And I started out when I did this, I had one assistant working for me. When I finished 18 months later, I had five doctors, 12 staff members, a wow. 5,000 square foot clinic. And I was making net profit more than 10 times what I was doing. No kidding. Working more efficiently and doing only what I was loving to do that produced and brought fulfillment. And I never went back from that. I realized every time I do anything less than what is inspiring, that's productive, I devalue myself, distract myself, disempower myself, and I create chaos. And I end up bringing my blood and glucose down into the 
from the executive center, where I'm now the executive leader, down into the amygdala, and now I'm impulsive and instinctual instead of actually present. Yeah. I go, I'm not doing that. I'm, I've delegated that, and I've hired people for the last 40 years to not have to do those things again. Yeah, that's so inspiring, though, too, to think about really what is it that you value and what's important to you. And and I always tell therapists, too, is sometimes we do these tasks that's like, you need to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I the one sending this email that somebody could help me with this? And, you know, I, I really encourage people to really look at that and figure out what is, how are you best serving the clients you work exactly. with? Exactly. I, I had a funny thing happen. I do a lot of traveling. And uh, in fact, I live traveling pretty well. And I was coming in from Australia and I got in probably about eight o'clock at night. And then I was early in my office. I, I, I rarely go to my office in Houston. I have an office there, but I'm rarely there. Like I haven't even been there. It's been about a year. And um, so I popped into the office and I forgot to unlatch the door. And I went back to my office. I got my computer and I was working quietly. And my staff started coming in and they knew I was coming in town. So they knew there's going to be a lot of delegations. Get ready. Get ready for the guy. But they didn't know I was in the back. And so this couple came in that were a husband and wife that worked for me. And uh, Keith, the gentleman, I heard him say to his wife, well, get ready for a whirlwind. You know what happens when he gets in? He's going to delegate lots of new stuff. We're going to have a busy day. We do. And then he says, we do dang near everything for him except wipe his butt. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't know I was in the back. So for fun, I got a delegation sheet, which I have delegation forms. And I put some Kleenex tissues that I had in my office with a paper clip and said, 10 o'clock, wipe butt. (laughs) (laughs) Cute. (laughs) So it was a joke, but... It was true. He, he knew that he was going yeah. to be delegated. But the real truth is people feel more fulfilled when they're right at that border of a busy day, not overwhelming, but full. They oh, actually yeah. have a more fulfilling day. So I learned if I can keep my team busy. Now I have, I delegate that to somebody else to do, but they keep the team busy. And um, that way there's no idle time because idle time puts you in the amygdala and productive time puts you in the executive center where you're engaged more. Well, that's that's good to know that that really that's what's going to help you be more effective too through your day. Yeah, I, I'm I'm very grateful that I've learned to delegate because I don't want to do things that I'm not inspired by. It, it, my life goes by too quick yeah. to go by, and, and you know, if, if you a quiet life of desperation, as Henry David Thoreau would say, is not the life that I envisioned. I envisioned living an inspired life, doing what I love, beautifully paid. So my vocation and vacation are the same. So I don't have Monday morning blues, Wednesday hump days, thank God it's Fridays and week friggin' ends. I wanted a life that is designed by me. And if we don't get up in the morning and design it how we want it, other people are going to get up and try to design it for us. Exactly. They're not dedicated to our fulfillment. Oh, I hear that. So can you talk about survival brain? I know you were talking a little bit about that, bringing in the amygdala. (laughs) What is survival brain? You know, there's different ways of describing it. William James called it the higher mind and lower mind. Some people call it systems one and, or system two and system one. Uh, some people call it the uh, executive center in the amygdala. There's many different angles of looking at it or, uh, you know, thrival versus survival, that kind of thing. But I really believe that the brain is set up for emotional emergencies, and it's also set up for an extraordinary inspired pursuit of something meaningful and designing with foresight. We have foresight and hindsight. Hindsight is the least effective, except in emergencies. We got to react quick and then then think. But in most of our lives, it's not an emergency unless you're not delegating. And then um, you can actually live with foresight and plan and design it. That's what Alec McKenzie showed 
that the people that are that take the time with foresight to envision how they want their life to strategically plan strategies to do it and to mitigate the risks and anticipate it and transcend fantasies of immediate gratification for a long-term pursuit of it, you build momentum incrementally to achieve something and you have less survival mentality. If we, if we don't fill our day with high-priority actions that really inspire us, our day fills up with low-priority distractions that don't. One is an inspiring you know, thrival and the other one is an uninspiring survival mentality. So I'm a firm believer of prioritization of life to help bring the executive center in line to anticipate and anticipate and structure your life in such a way where you're doing what you love on a daily basis and you have less time for all the distractions that most people are trapped in. Oh, I think that's a perfect way. Good reminders too about really for our inspiring life to really look at how we're planning our days and, and what is inspiring to us. Exactly. You know, I just don't do it. I, people say, you learn to say thank you, but no thank you very tactfully. That I ask myself, is that really the highest priority thing I could be doing? No. And I tell them, I says, I don't want to give you a halfway job um, and, and I have other priorities and I don't want to, I don't want to do something that's not going to give my all to, and you deserve to have somebody do that, not me. And I just say, say tactfully, thank you, but no, thank you. I, I don't want to be distracted by that because I, I know clearly what it is. When we're when our day is filled with things that really do mean something and are inspiring to us, that's highly fulfilling, it's easy to say no because you're full. Yeah, exactly. So if you don't get up and fill your day with those things, then you're going to end up having people easily distract you. And the entropy that takes over when you don't negentropize your life and focus it and prioritize it is a feedback to let you know you're not living authentically because your authentic self is revolves around what's really highest on your value. So if you are honest with yourself about what it is, I love teaching. So if I fill my day with it, I got a massively grateful day throughout the end of the day. And I just say, thank you. What an amazing day ahead. But if I don't fill it and other people's going to fill it, you know, things are going to, you know, that weird stuff just comes in and just un, the unexpected distractions. The same thing with money. If you don't put your money into asset accumulation, you attract unexpected bills. It's a lesson and people who don't value themselves. It's very important to um, to value what you do. I always say I, I wanted to work not because I had to. I wanted to work because I love to. So I wanted to make sure my passive income was at least 50 times the actual income I make working. So I just work because I love to do it. So what are the signs that you're living in a more reactive survival brain? Well, you're distracted, first of all. Anything that you infatuate with and are impulsively drawn to because you're conscious of the upsides and unconscious of the downsides to, it's going to occupy space and time in your mind and distract you and take up space and time in your mind. It's going to be preoccupying you. And you're not present or clear. You're not centered. You're eccentrically pushed off to the impulsive distraction that you're addicted to or seeking. And the same thing if you're resenting something, you know, you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upsides, and now you have an instinct to avoid it, and you now have that running your mind, and now your mind is basically filled with this static and noise that's, you know, bombarding you from external perceptions that are false attribution biases generally, and that basically keeps you in this noise system instead of being clear conscious. But if you ask the right questions that balances out your mind and see the downsides to what's up and the upsides to what's down and bring it back into center, stabilize yourself, you automatically get the blood glucose and oxygen going to the forebrain where you're more objective, where you're more neutral and you're more inspired and you're more, in a sense, proactive instead of reactive to these impulses and instincts that the amygdala is 
so accustomed to, you know, seeking prey and avoiding predator mentality. And our two fears, the basic two fears that run all of our lives is the fear of loss of the fantasy that we're seeking and the fear of gain of the, pre- the predator and nightmare that we're trying to avoid. And so every time we allow ourselves these polarized perceptions, we're adding fear into our life as a feedback to let us know we're not back on our track into an objective path that inspires us. Everything is a feedback to try to get us on track to what's authentic and what's meaningful. I was curious what your perception is of social media and people that get addicted to that, if, if that's more of a survival brain. Well, it depends. I mean, you can use so- social media strategically with a plan and make a difference in it. That's, I don't watch social media. I put information on social media yeah. that tries to inspire. I don't get distracted by it. I have somebody else that takes care of that. I do believe that social media is neutral in how you use it, what is what matters. If you let the external world distract you by what you do that's sensational on that, then, you know, you just look at yourself. Don't blame the social media. That'd be a false attribution bias. It's easy through the social media to distract people with it, but that's still your responsibility to select and prioritize what and how you use that tool because it's a tool that can be a distractor or it can tool to be something that makes a huge difference in the world. So how do you use it? You want to yeah. ask yourself that. You don't want to blame something. You know, people can blame that, well, the social media is taking up my time. Well, turn it off. <laughs> only, put, <laughs> only put on there what you feel you want to bring as your message out there. But don't sit there and get involved in social gags. I have a guy that somehow got my email and um, I sent him a response back the first time. I said, thank you for your, for your response. But if you contact this number, they can help you. And that was it. And now when he sends it in, it just it, um, he now knows it's like a, a Skinner operant conditioning. He's now getting punished if he tries to reach me and he's getting rewarded if he goes and asks them. Yeah. So people get the lesson eventually realize that I'm a busy individual. And I, if I don't take, you know, and prioritize my life, then other people are going to occupy space and time in my mind. Yeah, that's it. We got to set those boundaries. Yeah. Or just, well, I don't even call them a boundary. I just say prioritization. Prioritization, yeah. Yeah, just if I fill it with high priorities, I don't have to be worried about distracted by low priorities. Really simple. So how do you know if you're living in more of the thrival brain? Well, if you have to ask the question, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Am I? (laughs) Because if you are, if you are, you're grateful for your life. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're loving what you're doing. You're inspired by the vision you're holding in your mind, which is spontaneous. You're enthusiastically working on it. You're present while you're doing it, and you're certain about your skill. I call those the six transcendentals. You know, Peter Lynch and his one up on Wall Street back in the 90s, um, you know, he was a pretty good guy on, on um, the, the financial markets and, and the fidelity. And uh, in his book, he said something really cool. He said, he says, when I go and do my technical and quantitative analysis on the companies that he's about to buy in stock, and he says, once I do all that, I get a narrowed down to a handful of companies. I then get on a jet and I fly over to the headquarters and I walk around and meet people and introduce myself and, and get to know them because I'm about to buy, you know, a billion dollars worth of their stock. And in the process of doing it, I want to know them. And he says, I'm looking for six things. I'm looking for people who are grateful for their job. And because the way they do that, they go, they say, oh, I love doing this. Instead of, I got to do that. Because when you're not grateful for your job, you have imperatives. When you're grateful for your job, you're inspired. I, he says, I'm looking for people who love what they're doing, inspired by the vision of the company, enthusiastically, energetically working. They're skilled and they're certain about their skills. And they're very present when you're interacting with them and present with their work. 
which means they're fully engaged. He says, if I do that and I invest money in that, I will make money, my clients will make money, the company will make money, and it will serve vast numbers of people with a highly qualified, exemplifying staff. And that helps society, helps technology, it helps everything. Turning your passion for helping others into a successful private practice requires organization and focus. But even the most motivated clinicians get overwhelmed. And let's not forget, you deserve a life outside of being a therapist. This is exactly why the Prime Planner was created. Thoughtfully designed by a therapist, the Prime Planner will create clarity for you with prompts that keep you focused, all while managing your busy schedule without the overwhelm. The Prime Planner's weekly layout is designed to include your schedule, as well as strategic prompts for your priorities and to-dos. Plus, track your connections you want to nurture and your own self-care and gratitude. Begin every month with a beautifully laid out priming and aligning section and confidently track CEUs, finances, goals, and more. Plus, you'll stay on the right path throughout the year after outlining your annual roadmap and reviewing your quarterly check-ins. Ditch the distractions and take control with the Prime Planner. Available in two sizes and PDFs. Use promo code HCP10 for 10% off your 2023 planner. Check out all the tools at www.theprimeplanner.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. So if you realize you're in more of the survival brain, so what else, what can you do to get out of that? If you realize you're very distracted, you're not feeling centered, you're not present. Well, you're designed not to be if you're not prioritizing. The prioritizing is important. Yeah. You're, you're, life is giving you feedback constantly. Your physiology will create symptoms if you don't. Your psychology will create noise and scatter and self-depreciations if you don't. Your friends will create volatility and emotional drama if you don't. Everything is around you is pushing you back into authenticity because the second you go back to priority, it starts to flow. And what's interesting is most people, if you ask them what is priority, they're, they're lost. I've been doing a value determination process for 45 years as I'm teaching for 50. And uh, most people, if you ask them what their values are, they're going to tell you a bunch of social idealisms instead of actually what their life demonstrates. And I'm only interested in what their life really demonstrates. I was in South Africa speaking at a big conference there, about uh, about 5,000 people. And uh, Richard Branson and I were doing this program there. And and um, I asked, I stood up at the very beginning and I said, listen, how many of you want to be financially independent? And all the hands went up and half, both of them had bo- both hands up and some had a leg in the air. And I said, okay, great. Now, how many of you are? And all the hands went down. I said, isn't it interesting? You have a fantasy about being financially independent, but you actually don't live it. So I'm going to challenge you and show you that you're your highest value isn't financial independence. Your highest value is living the lifestyles of something beyond yourself and buying consumables that depreciate in value and you wonder why you're struggling financially. So we're gonna we're gonna crack the whip today and we're gonna get grounded here and we're gonna make you realize that the hierarchy of your values is dictating your destiny and you need to be clear about what's really truly important to you instead of lying to yourself, because that is self-defeating. And people don't realize that. They live vicariously through other people and other people's brands instead of actually honestly looking integrally at what is truly invaluable to them. And their life is demonstrating that. I have, I have women that say, my kids are everything to me, but they're out working all day long. Or, you know, I really want to grow a business, but I can't seem to get it off the ground because they're focused on their kids. And they're basically incongruent with what they say they want because they're envying other people and trying to imitate other people instead of being true to themselves. And so the first thing, if you want to get out of survival, 
is to get really truthful about what your life is demonstrating as you're committed to and what's important to you. And that's why I I call it determining your values first. Then start structuring your life according to priority, according to what's truly found, not your fantasies and idealisms and the envies you have of the people. So I know you have the Demartini method. Is this part of that? No, the Demartini method is different. That's the that's the value. De- I have the Demartini value determination process. Determination. Okay. Yeah, that's on my website, drdemartini.com. They can do that for free. It's private. That's separate. The Demartini method is a series of very precise questions that assist people in discovering a hidden order in what they think is apparent chaos, and to help them see what they're unconscious of because it's making them ask questions to make them fully conscious to override the things they're unconscious of so they can see both sides to life so they're less likely to be in survival mode reacting with impulses and instincts and see both sides and be present. So it's a a science. It's a methodical science. I've been working on it for 50 years to help people transcend survival mode so they can get on with doing something that's meaningful and then live by the priorities that they're truly valuing, not the fantasies that they're subordinating to by the collective herd instinct and impulse. And is it sometimes that people take values that they see other people doing around them and live their life? They think that's how they should be living their lives. And- well, Emerson said, envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. And uh, Einstein said, my contempt for authority is what made me one. He didn't subordinate to authority. He didn't subordinate to Philip Leonard, his teacher at the time. He confronted the Nobel Prize winner and found a flaw in his theory. And then that became a feud. But the truth is he was accurate. So having the courage to stand out in a world that wants you to fit in is the path. Uh, otherwise, you're part of the collective hero, as Ernest Becker says, instead of the individual hero. And you're basically, um, yeah, it's, it's it, as long as you put somebody on a pedestal and think they're smarter than you, more successful than you, or more wealthy than you, or more you know stable in their relationship, you are more socially savvy than you, or more physically fit than you, or more spiritually aware than you. As long as you minimize yourself and exaggerate somebody else, you're going to inject their values and cloud the clarity of your own mission in life, your own purpose in life. So we're not here to subordinate ourselves to others and live as second at somebody that's being somebody else. We're here to stand on the shoulders of giants and being first at being ourselves. Yeah, that's that's really uh, good for therapists to remember too, because I think it's easy for even us to get in that comparison model and. You know, people will now, as like social media, for example, post all their success in this in business, and it's easy for therapists to compare themselves that are in business too. And well, if you compare your, if you have time to compare yourself to somebody else, you're not comparing your own daily actions to your own highest priorities, which is going to give you the greatest result. Hmm. You know, it's Thorpe, the swimmer, when they did an interview with him and his coach, uh, he was about to get up and, and you know about to dive into the water, and he said something that's very pertinent. He says, if I look to my right or left and look at my competitors, I've already lost the race. I have to look straight on at my objective and become present with the objective and see it in my mind's eye, perfectly clear, done. And I'm a firm believer that if you're comparing yourself to others and putting them on pedestals or pits, you're going to minimize or exaggerate yourself, lose your authentically and the power that you have to go do something extraordinary. But if you put them in your heart and have reflective awareness, which is what the Demartini Method's about, The method is basically asking what specific trait, action, or inaction do you perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating that you admire, look up to, or despise, look down on most. And then you go and once you define that so it's not nebulous, you then go to a moment where and when you perceive in yourself uh, displaying or demonstrating the same or similar trait inside yourself. And you own that trait 100% quantitatively, qualitatively, so you're no longer are too humble or too admiring, too too proud to admit you got it. You now own it. The seer, the seeing, the seen, or the same. 
Once you do that, you're now coming from a perspective of not putting people above or down. You're not minimizing or exaggerating you. You're present with equanimity and equity. And in that place, you go back to your executive center, you start moving on thrival because you're not distracted by comparison. Comparison, as, as Wilhelm Wundt, the founder of ex, you know, education and, and psychology and experimental psychology, said, that it's the sequential contrast that distracts us from being present with the simultaneous reflections. So we, we are here to be reflective, not deflective, and be inspired and, and, and use people as a feedback to discover what we have inside ourselves. Because as, as it says in the Romans, I think in the New Testament, if we're resenting somebody, it's because they're reminding us of something we're ashamed of, but we're hiding and we're too proud to admit it. And for admiring something, we're too humble to admit it. But the truth is, whatever we see in others, we have within ourselves. And they're there to teach us how to love all parts of ourselves. And when we, we do, we're not distracted by the impulses and instincts that we're trying to seek or avoid. Yeah, and that comes up a lot with um, psychology, too, with what the, we do as therapists is learning to love all parts of ourselves. I'm glad you exactly. said that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, there's nothing. I always say there's absolutely nothing. That, I tell people, you know, no matter what you've done or not done, you're worthy of love. So let's start from the basics. The, the moral hypocrisies that we subordinate to, as Paul Direct said, the Nobel Prize winner, he said, it's not that we don't know so much, we know so much that isn't so. So we're basically bombarded and injected the values of people that may be projecting their own wounds onto you and calling it moral hypocrisies, and then you're trapped in them instead of actually transcending them, as Kohlberg would say, transcending them and living in a, a view, an overview effect where you see neither of those positive negatives. You're seeing things just as they are and not the subjective biases that you misinterpret things with. And that liberates you from the, the judgments you have on others or yourself because it's the judgments that keep us in the terrestrial world and it's the love that takes us to the celestial view. That's what I wondered with, what are some of the emotions with like reactive survival brain? Is it more... All um, the polarized All the polarized states... The false joys and sorrows and happy and sads and admirations and despise and infatuation, resentments, and manics and depressions. You know, it's the it's the polarized emotions that are subjectively interpreting things with incomplete awareness. And um, it's the transcendent synthesized feelings, which we described the gratitude, love, inspiration, enthusiasm, certain presence that where we see both sides simultaneously, the integration of opposites. And in Scientific American just recently, they showed that the medial prefrontal cortex, the executive center, is now they've defined it as the seat of the true authentic self. And they showed that uh, it's the integrative center. So that's a pretty, pretty yeah, cool thing. That is really cool. It's really cool. It just happened. And, and that, you know, they've been saying, where's the seat of the soul, if you will? They thought, well, the pineal by Descartes or whatever. But really, it's the, the integrative self-governing center where all information is more objective and we're not subjectively distorting things by our comparisons and judgments of survival. And that's where we have the most power. And we, ha- we have the capacity to live there. We don't have to be sitting there living in survival all day long. Most of our survival are feedback systems to let us know we're not living by priority. And there's a physiological response to living in survival mode too that can oh, really yeah. negatively well, impact yeah. you. You automatically have autonomic dysregulation syndrome. You automatically have a altered uh, heart rate variability. Your physiology shows it. it the epigenetic coding from all the imbalances of sympathetic or parasympathetic responses. And, and you can have symptomatology. I just finished teaching a five-day program on a thousand conditions and the psychology behind them. There's no doubt that the autonomic nervous system is creating symptoms to let you know with, with its epigenetic impact on genes and expression and illness and regression every time we're not living by priority and objective. It's letting us know it. It's a, we, We've been caught in a 
palliative, monopoled uh, healing modality world that, you know, if you feel good, well, then you're healthy. And if you feel bad, you're not. But that's false. If a person pigs out and overeats and they wake up feeling snuffed up and cramps and gas, those symptoms aren't disease. Those symptoms are a healthy response to somebody who is pigged out to let them know that they've They've not. They've had a, an imbalanced perspective. And they overeat, and they're basically creating symptoms to let them know how to eat. So if we reinterpret our symptoms and use them as a guide to live wisely, we don't sit there and get caught in the trap of an opium of the mass mentality in the healthcare systems. And that's keeping us because it sells. It's commercial, but it's not true. And a lot of times we get caught in that. We're addicted to immediate gratification instead of focusing on long-term vision, embracing the two sides of life evenly. No, that makes a lot of sense. It's embracing life immediately. Yeah. And I just think of those red flags, right? When our body tells us these signs, we got to listen instead of pushing them aside. The, the body is amazingly, the autonomic nervous system is is controlling every cell of the body other than just a, the calluses of the kidney is about the only place it's not controlling. And so every single cell has receptor sites for acetylcholine, you know, cholinergic or adrenergic responses. And so if we perceive a challenge without a support and we're not willing to look for where the support is at that time, our adrenergic systems are going to go off and we're going to create the symptoms that the sympathetic does. It's going to dry up the bowels. The mucus glands of Brunner are going to start losing their secretions. We're going to get blood supply that's going out into the muscles. We're going to tighten up our muscles. We're going to have indigestion. You know, all of the, the heart rate's going to go up. The lungs are going to start dilating. All the things that we would expect from autonomic responses are measurable. And it's letting us know that we're seeing a challenge without a support and that we're overlooking the obvious that's there and we're unconscious of it. And it's giving us an opportunity to ask the right question to become present with that unconscious information. If we do that and we balance it and discover it by asking the proper questions and we bring ourselves back to homeostasis, we automatically calm the symptoms down. The symptoms don't need to be there because we're now back on seeing things as it is, not have we subjectively interpreted them. It's a feedback system. Yeah. Well, I wanted to get to before we end today about your book, um, The Seven Secret Treasures. Can you share a little bit of what listeners can expect from that book? Well, because I talk about values in there, it's applications of values. Whenever you're, if you ask a question, whatever I'm studying, reading, learning about, how is it helping me fulfill what's most meaningful? If you make links neuroplastically in the brain to your executive center by asking that question and answering it, you will not only spot information, absorb the information, retain the information, apply that information more efficiently. If you take a job that you're going to at, at, at work, and you ask yourself, how specifically is doing this job helping me do and fulfill what's most meaningful to me? Your engagement level, productivity level, uh, feeling of ownership level, and the job goes up, which increases productivity and profitability. If you go in there and look in finances and ask, how is saving and investing in quality assets uh, serving me and helping me fulfill the highest values, you increase the probability of uh, overlooking the immediate gratification impulses and allow you to start to invest so your money's working for you instead of you working for it as a slave. If you do it in a relationship and ask how specifically is this individual that I love, how is their highest values and what's important to them fulfilling me and mine, then you're not less likely to be in alternating dialogues and trying to force them to be living in your values, which undermines relationship. You'll appreciate them and love them for who they are. When you do, they turn into who you love. If you go out and socially go find out what the world is looking for in your niche, and find out how fulfilling their niche is helping you fulfill yours, 
you're more likely to congruently with, in a sense, equanimity and equity, serve them, which helps you profit and lead. If you do the same thing by living by high priorities, you end up helping your physiology and maximize its potential. And you're more inspired by life, which is your spiritual quest. And whatever is highest on your value is your spiritual quest, whatever it is. You're not here to compare yourself to other ideas of what spirituality is, what's inspiring to you. And so the book is about how to master the seven areas of life and how to live congruently so you can go out and have a life that you can say thank you. You're going to want to document every night what you're grateful for spontaneously because you had what an amazing year I had today. That attitude. That's what the book's about. And when is that coming out? Actually, tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> ironically. <laughs> it comes out tomorrow. I haven't. I just finished another book yesterday that's going to come out in about a month. But this one, this, The Seven Secret Treasures, is coming out tomorrow. So I'm, I'm very inspired by and it. And it is October 24th <laughs> today. Yeah, it's, it's simple and it's, and it's a fast reading book and it's, nice. and it's practical. Very practical stuff you can do immediately to start more empowering the areas of your life. So you have a free gift for my listeners on your website. Can you share? On my website, if you go to just drdmartini.com and look where it says determine your values, there's a free, complimentary, private, 13 steps. It's 13 questions. And I've been working on this for many, many years to help you discern what's really priority to you. Now you think, why would you do that? I can just tell you what it is. I've been doing this for 45 years, this determination process. I can tell you that only one person in 45 years showed me first time congruency. I was amazed. It's, uh, most people think they know what's really important to them, and they don't even realize how much they're subordinating to the collective society around them. This helps you go and look at what your life demonstrates, not what you fantasize about. And that's an important step in making clear decisions that are priority that you will achieve. Because if you set a goal that's not really high in your values, you'll procrastinate, hesitate, frustrate, beat yourself up, going, why is it not happening? Why am I sabotaging? Why am I having limiting beliefs and all this other verbiage that comes around with it? But the second you set real goals with real timeframes, with real strategies on something that's really important to you, you will grab out of yourself your great genius that sits sometimes untapped. What's the best way for listeners to find you and learn more about you? The website, drdmartini.com, will keep them busy for probably a couple lifetimes. <laughs> a couple lifetimes. Okay. And we'll have that in the show notes as well, in case you forget what he said as far as the website. But I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, Dr. Demartini. This has been great. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're a great question. You're, this, is your, this is your heart. This is your love. These yes. topics <laughs> and this question. So we're resonant. So I, I, I can go on all day on this topic. Absolutely. And don't forget to join us for another episode next Wednesday. Remember to support the show by rating and reviewing in the app you're listening to so we can continue to get more impactful guests. And again, this is Chris McDonald sending each one of you much light and love. Till next time, take care. If you're loving this show, will you rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform? This can help us to reach more holistic therapists and bring even more impactful guests to the show. And once again, thanks for being a show supporter. <laughs>